Good morning, everyone. Welcome to New Vine Community Church. We're very happy to have each and every one of you here with us today, and welcome to those who are watching online today as well. All right, I'd like to invite everybody to stand. We'll have a word of prayer, and then get started with worship. Lord, I want to thank you for bringing us all together here today safely. I want to thank you for everything you've done in our lives throughout the week, and everything we know you continue to do. We just ask that you come be in our midst today as we worship you. In your name we pray. Amen. Oh, 
All right, everybody, go take a second, turn around and say hello to somebody. Go ahead and pick up one of these forms from the seat back in front of you. Fill it out and drop it in the offering bag as it goes through. January 22nd and 29th, we will have a prayer ministry training. If you would like to serve on our prayer team, then this training is for you. Please sign up on the form in the seat back and put it in the offering or give it to Chuck if you are interested. Our next baptism is January 28th at 11 a.m. Please sign up on the form in the seat back pocket and put it in the offering if you want to get baptized. Thanks for watching the announcements. If you need any more information, go to our website or pick up a bulletin. Thanks for being here and enjoy the service. Is everyone warm? Yes? Anyone cold? Anyone freezing? Anyone need a blanket? I'm, I'm not kidding. You got your coat? There's a couple of little ladies, and they were cold, so I went and got them blankets. But anyway... Um, Tomorrow night is our uh, prayer training class. If you want to be on the prayer team, you need to go to this class and teach you how to pray for people, right? So uh, it's not rocket science, but it's just learning to be nice to people when you pray for them. And so um, I don't know what's coming up. You can read, read this thing. And if you gave money last year through the, your, your tithes and offerings, some over on that table is a little box that's got your giving record so you can tell Uncle Sam what you did because he's really concerned about you, <clears throat> right? Of course he is. And so we've been doing our series on um, how to grow and, and on, on keeping fit. And so we looked at spiritual, and, and today Mark is going to look at intellectual. Next week we're going to look at financial. So anyway, uh, it'll be good. So let's say a prayer, and we will take up the offering. So, Lord, just thank you that we can give to you. And we know, Lord, we would have nothing without you anyway. So use these gifts to glorify your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. You guys all right? Good? 
If you have a Bible, turn with me to uh, Luke 10. That's where we're going to kind of be at. We're actually going to be all over the place, but we are doing a series on getting in shape. And today is the H, which stands for head, which stands for intellect, which is hilarious that I get to do this talk. Right? So... uh I always like to start off a little bit of silence and just being still before the Lord. So let's take a few moments simply just to to open our hearts to God. And, and we're going to invite the Holy Spirit just to, to meet us. And really, God's always here. It's us that has to to open up. And so let's just take a few moments simply to do that, and then we'll get going. So Holy Spirit, we ask that you just come, that you just uh, meet us here as we direct our hearts and minds to you. Father, we thank you for this morning, and Holy Spirit, we ask that you just come, that you just open our hearts to you as we explore this passage and what it looks like to to love you with our mind. So we ask that you just bless our time, in Jesus' name everybody said, amen. Luke chapter 10, Jesus has been asked a question by a religious leader on what is the greatest Commandment. I'm going to grab a uh, tissue real fast. Sorry. And Jesus says this back to him. He says, the greatest commandment is this. To love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, and with all of your, and what's it say? Mind. So this is the greatest commandment, and the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And so we've been talking about getting in shape and what does it look like to love God with our mind? And so that's the kind of the question that I'm, I wanted to explore this morning is what does it look like for us to love God with our mind? I was a terrible student. Anybody a terrible student? I was homeschooled um, as a, so mom and dad homeschooled us when I was in kindergarten all the way up in the third grade. And then when we moved here to start the church, uh, they put us in the public schools. And so my first experience in public school was in the fourth grade. And I remember the exact day that my academic career went down the drain. We had been given books in our English class to do a book report. And I was a terrible reader. And, um, one, I was bored, and two, I, I wasn't very good at, I didn't feel like I was very good at reading. And I'm a procrastinator. So anybody else procrastinators? So that's just the worst combination, to be dumb and be a procrastinator. <clears throat> and so, I've been given this book to do a book report. The day has come for me to do the book report in Mrs. Smith's class, and I had not read the book. So I decided that I was going to do the report completely based on the cover of the book. So I'm up there giving this talk about this book that I have not read. And I remember the cover, there was like a picture of a a little boat and there was a mouse and the mouse had a needle or something in its eye or a toothpick in his eye. I have no idea what the book was about. I still don't know what it was about. And I'm in the middle of giving this book report, and she stops me in my tracks and says, Mark, you didn't read this, did you? And I remember being like, yep, I didn't. And I got an F. And from there on out, for the rest of my academic career in Franklin Public Schools, 
It was mostly F's. I made good enough grades to play ball, but that was practically it. I graduated high school with a 1.6 grade point average, and for the most of my life, I thought I was just dumb. Which, you know, that's okay. Some people are dumb. I had an old football coach who used to say, if you're going to be dumb, then you better be tough. And I thought, well, I'm pretty tough, so that balances it out a little bit. Right? And so, most of my life, I thought that I was dumb. It wasn't until I started coaching sports, coaching football in particular in high school, that I realized that, actually, maybe I'm not dumb. Because I had all of a sudden realized I had this capacity to memorize techniques and plays and, and all these different things. And I was like, wait a minute, maybe my brain does work. Maybe I was just bored. Right? Does that make sense? And so I say all of that to say this. Maybe you've grown up thinking you're dumb. The reality is that I don't think people are dumb. I think that there are different ways to learn. And we have to figure out what is the best way for us to learn. And I also think that finding something that sets your heart on fire is helpful. It wasn't that I was dumb. It was that I wasn't interested. Does that make sense? And so it's learning if we're going to love God with our mind, it's not about whether we're smart or dumb or whatever. It's are we interested? Are we pursuing what God wants? Good? And so this raises a question for me. Why would God be concerned with our minds? And why would God be concerned with how we think? Now, have you guys noticed the world lately? Is it crazy? Super crazy, right? There's like seven and a half billion people in the world and it's bonkers out there. It's probably bonkers in here too, if we really are honest. We're the normal people. Right? But it's bonkers out there. Now, it raises the question, why is it bonkers out there? Well, I have a theory on this, and it looks like this diagram. I believe that what we think and how we think affects the way that we feel. And how we feel affects the things that we do. Does that make sense? And so... um, so give you an example. You're a little kid and you're scared of the dark. Why are you scared of the dark? Because you believe that there's monsters in your closet. And so because you believe there are monsters in your closet, it does something to your body physiologically. It makes you feel afraid. And because you feel afraid, you have particular responses depending on how you interact with that feeling. Some people fight. Some people flight. Some people freeze. You know what I'm saying, right? And so how we think affects how we feel, and how we feel affects the things that we do. And so I believe that God is concerned about how we think because it, it has uh, implications. Perhaps one of the reasons why the world is as crazy as it is is perhaps because we're thinking wrong about the issues that we see in front of us. And so perhaps you could say it like this. What I do is influenced by how I feel. And how I feel is influenced by what I think. Now, I don't want to tell you what to think. But I do want to perhaps suggest particular ways on how to think. Good? And so a couple thoughts. Number one, if we're going to learn how to honor God and love God with our mind, it begins by guarding our mind. Because there's all kinds of information coming at you all of the time. For example, right now it's coming in. Information, information incoming. There's always all kinds of information coming at us all the time. Now, notice what Paul says in Romans chapter 12. He says this. He says, do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your, what's it say there? Your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect 
will. And so Paul says, listen, don't be fooled. Don't get tricked. Don't conform to the patterns of this world. But renew, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, when Paul says the patterns of this world, what is he talking about here? What is these patterns of this world? Now, Paul was a, a Jewish Pharisee. He was a teacher of the law. He knew the Old Testament inside and out. And the Old Testament shaped his worldview. It shaped the way that he interpreted things around him. Does that make sense? Because all of us have a worldview. We all have a particular way that we think and we see the world. Perhaps you could call it a lens that we're wearing. Good? And so Paul had a particular lens that he wore that helped him interpret the world around him. And they were stories, ancient stories. One of those ancient stories was a story about these two brothers, Cain and Abel. You guys remember this bedtime story? And so, if you don't know it, it goes like this. Cain and Abel were the sons of Adam and Eve. They never experienced the garden. They grew up outside of the garden. They had probably heard stories about their parents' relationship with God, but they had never experienced anything like that. And so, deep within them, they had, perhaps you could say, the desire to seek the approval and the relationship with God that their parents once had. Does this make sense? And so we find them at the very, very beginning of their story offering sacrifices to God because this is the way that you would live in relationship with God at the time that they were alive or whatever. And so you have the two of them offering sacrifices to God. The story goes is that God approves of Abel's sacrifice, but he disapproves of Cain's sacrifice. And so Cain is upset about this. And instead of just simply looking at himself, taking God's advice and saying, listen, if you do what is right, would I not approve of you? Instead of thinking and reflecting simply for himself and fixing whatever's wrong within him, what does he do? He blames his brother, right? He blames his brother. And so then he invites his brother out into the field and then he kills him. And I imagine for a short period of time, he had a little bit of peace with this. Like, oh, that took away my problem. But obviously we understand that when we remove one problem from our lives, other problems emerge when we're the problem. Yeah? And so I would argue that this is the pattern, or one of the patterns, that Paul is mentioning here when he says, don't be conformed by the patterns of this world. So what's going on in this story? Cain and Abel both want something. They have a desire. They want God's approval. Cain comes to this realization that his brother has what he wants. Instead of doing the work to deal with his own junk, he assumes that his brother is the problem. And so he takes it out on his brother and kills him. And then he feels good about it for a while, but obviously it doesn't hold up. I would argue that this is one of the major patterns that we are constantly dealing with in our lives. Perhaps you could look at it like this. <coughs> Everything begins with desire. There's something that I want, something that you want, but you probably don't have it. But you notice that somebody else does. And so it begins to birth a rivalry within you. And as this rivalry grows, a crisis begins to emerge because you need what they have. And so instead of just simply being happy for your neighbor, for having whatever it is that they have that you don't have, you become jealous and angry with them. And so you come to this place where you believe, well, hey, I'm not the problem here. They're the problem. 
And so what do we do? We scapegoat them. And often this will lead to violence. And in this violence, we get rid of them. We make the sacrifice so that we can receive what we want. Now, let's make this practical. Anybody a parent? Right? I'm a parent. Two beautiful kids. They're insane. They drive me insane. Right? So here's the thing that parents want more than anything else. Parents want peace and quiet. I think more than anything else, all I really want at the end of the day is peace and quiet. The problem is, at least in my house, I don't have any peace and quiet. Right? Now, I notice other people, they seem to have peace and quiet because I look at their Facebook pages. (laughs) And I see all their beautiful families and all the beautiful things that they're doing. And they're like, it seems so nice. And I wish I could have that. But I don't. And it's not like I could be a crazy person and go steal somebody else's family, move in with them. So I begin to have this crisis. I want peace and quiet, but I can't have it because these people in my house. Now, I can't hate my whole family. That would be insane. But what we do is we determine, actually, there's one. There's one. If we could just get rid of them somehow, (laughs) then there would be some peace and quiet, right? So right now, in this stage, it's our daughter. (laughs) Sorry, Belle. She's back there. I love you. (laughs) This is a perfect example of how this works. (laughs) According to Annabelle... Her mother is the problem. (laughs) According to us, she's the problem. Evan doesn't get off scot-free here. When he was a toddler, he was the problem. Right? Does this make sense? And so what do we do? We scapegoat one person. We unify, the rest of us unify together, and we determine that the problem isn't us. The problem is her. Right? Does that make sense? Sometimes this happens in a marriage. Your marriage isn't going the way that you want it to go. You see other, you have friends and they have beautiful marriages. Or you see other people and they have beautiful relationships. And yours just isn't going as good as you would like. And you see their Facebook pages. You see their date nights. And you don't get those. And so what do you do? You determine that you're not the problem. Obviously, this other person, my spouse is the problem. And if I could just get a new one, or if they could just start doing what I want them to do, well, then we could be happy. We scapegoat them. Does this make sense? And we don't sacrifice them like the ancient world. We don't kill them, but we might give them the cold shoulder, treat them like crap until they conform to what we want. Does this make sense to you guys? So that's kind of it on the micro level, the everyday. Sometimes this happens at your work. But let's think about it on a national level. Once upon a time, this country was great. But it's not right now. And the reason it's not is because we don't have jobs. And the reason we don't have jobs is because there's some people who come to this country illegally. And it's not our problem. We don't just collect, collectively just say, hey, let's take some ownership and figure this thing out. What do we do collectively? We blame another group who doesn't look like us or talk like us. And we say to ourselves, they're the problem, not us. Yeah? Or maybe it's... Maybe it's not just some people group or ethnic group here or there. Maybe it's just simply, hey, they think differently than us. We, if we were in charge of this country with these political opinions and policies, if we could be in charge, then everything would be fine. 
The problem is, is we're not in charge right now. And these people that are in charge are the problem. And if we could simply get rid of them, then everything would be okay. Ring a bell? Instead of taking responsibility and simply having some ownership and working through our problems together, what do we do? We blame other people for our problems and we scapegoat them. This is how racism works, bigotry, prejudice. Sometimes it's not even between races, but sometimes it's between sexes. The problem is the patriarchy. Well, part of the problem is the patriarchy, but there are some other benefits to having men. Right? Does this make sense? And so what we do is we point the finger at others instead of collectively sitting down and saying, hey, let's figure this out. Good? Paul says this at the beginning of Romans. He says, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a, and what's it say there? As a living sacrifice. Holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. He says, instead of finding a scapegoat and sacrificing them and believing the lie that if we just get rid of them, then our problems will be taken away. He says, don't do that. Offer yourself as the sacrifice. Don't scapegoat. Let's think about Jesus' story real fast. Jesus emerges into a world where there were certain religious and political leaders that were in charge. They had a system. It made them money. It gave them power. Things were going fine for them. And then all of a sudden, this Jesus shows up, and he challenges both systems. To the political system, he says, actually, the kingdom of God is at hand. And to the religious system, he mingles with all of the people that they say you're not allowed to hang out with. He starts to stir the pot and cause some serious problems for the people that are in charge. So what do they do? They gather together and they say, man, this guy's a problem. Things were fine before he showed up. We need to get rid of him. And so what do they do? They scapegoat him. And they literally kill him for the things that he says. Which was nothing more than, hey, love your neighbors. Yeah? Does that make sense? And so if we're going to honor God with our mind, we have to guard it from all the ways that the world can corrupt it. And the two main vehicles that corrupt our minds is mass media and social media. Yep. Mass media is constantly saying who you need to be afraid of, who you need to vote for, who we need to get out of here. And then social media is constantly doing all the little tiny little ways of, of giving the same exact message. If we're not careful. Good? I'm trying to go fast because this was a long sermon in the, first, in the first one. So number one, if we're going to honor God with our mind, it begins by us guarding our mind. Which leads us to a second thought. Not only do we honor God with our minds and guard them, but if we're going to truly love God with our mind, then we have to be brave enough to embrace our questions and our doubts. Now, some people grew up in churches where you weren't allowed to ask questions. 
and you weren't allowed to doubt. And I would argue that that's insane. Because if you've ever read the Bible, it's insane. And if you don't have questions about some of the stuff that goes on in there, maybe you're insane, right? That's a joke. But the Bible's hard. And trying to understand it is tough sometimes. And living a life of faith is hard. A lot of times it doesn't make sense. Notice this story in Mark chapter 9. Jesus has been on top of the Mount of Transfiguration. He has gone up to pray with three of his closest disciples. And in that moment while he's on this mountain, he is transfigured in the sense that God pulls back the curtain for the disciples and shows Jesus his true nature. He's not just simply some man, but he's God incarnate. And they see this with their eyes. As they're making their way back down the mountain, the disciples are down there trying to heal this boy who has a demon. And this demon causes um, convulsions and, and seizures. And they can't seem to free this child of this problem. And so Jesus is upset about this. He seems to be frustrated. Notice what he says. He says, you unbelieving generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. And so Jesus is, I don't know if he's mad at his disciples. I don't know if he's even mad. Maybe he's not even mad. It's hard to tell. He just seems to be terribly frustrated with the situation, right? Like, you know when your kids are hurt and there's nothing you can do about it? It's frustrating, right? I feel like that's, that's kind of the sense that I get. Like, he's, he's just frustrated with the situation that his disciples couldn't fix this and the whole situation going on. And so it says that they bring the child to Jesus. And when the spirit saw Jesus, the demon in him, it says that it immediately threw the boy into convulsions and he fell to the ground and rolled around foaming at the mouth. And Jesus looked at the boy's father. And he's like, man, how long has he been like this? It's like there's this moment where he's just like, man, dude, you've been dealing. How long have you been dealing with this? This is terrible. And the father looks at him and he's like, from childhood, and go back real fast. He's often thrown him into the fire and the water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus responds by saying, if you can. He looks at him, he's like, everything, everything is possible for one who believes. And then notice how the father responds. It says that immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my, what's it say? My unbelief. God, what an honest answer. You know? It's like, I mean, I believe. But you don't even know, Jesus, like. For the last 12 years, I've been dealing with this. I believe, but I don't know. Right? And isn't that our life sometimes? Like, we see the things that are going on. We have our experiences. Like, I believe. There's parts of me that I don't know. I don't know why people have to go through the crap that they have to go through. I don't know why there's so much suffering in the world. I believe that God is good, but man, I don't, sometimes I don't know. And what's interesting is that Jesus doesn't like condemn him here in this moment. Jesus doesn't like smack him in the face and say, get it together. Jesus has this compassion on this man. And he ends up delivering the child. He heals the boy, casts out the demon. But sometimes that's how faith is. Sometimes there's half of my heart believes. And the other half of my heart just sometimes it doesn't know. I don't know why things happen. I don't know why some people, they just don't get it or a, a disease takes, takes a hold of their body. I don't know. There's another story about another father and son. That Jesus tells. And in that story, the son grows up in his father's home. 
I'm sure he's taught the things that his father believes. But at some point, he decides that he, he's not taking part. That's good for you guys, mom and dad, but I want to go figure out life on my own. And so he leaves, and he goes to figure out life on his own, and he makes all kinds of bad choices. Hanging out, the casino, vaping, doing all kinds of stuff that his parents wouldn't approve of, right? And at some point, he comes to his senses, and he realizes that, hey, I've made a mistake, and maybe it was actually better at my father's home. And so he decides to go back. And when he gets back, his dad is like, get out of here. How dare you challenge me and my beliefs, right? No, that's not how the story goes. Come on, guys. What's the dad do? The dad opens his arms, throws a party, embraces him, welcomes him back into the family. Because here's the thing when it comes to our doubts and our questions. Faith is about having a relationship. Faith isn't about what, I'll say it like this. I think oftentimes we think that if you're going to have faith, you have to believe certain things so that you can Behave certain ways so that you can belong. Yeah? So I need to say the prayer. I need to do the commands so that I can be a part of this family. I don't think that's how it works. My observation is simply this. When people come along and hang out, when they are welcomed, when they are accepted that they belong, first... What happens is it begins to influence what they believe, which then begins to influence how they behave. So I think in the American church, we get it backwards. We say you have to believe so that you can behave so that you can belong. Where my observation of Jesus is, hey, come on, come hang out. You belong. And through the time of belonging, it begins to change the way that they behave and what they believe. Does this make sense? And so faith is about having a relationship. If you have doubts, cool. Let's talk about them. If you have questions, excellent. Let's talk about them. Because we're a family. And we're welcome to discuss the things that we may struggle with. But it's being part of a church is learning how to be Long to a place where those things can happen. Good? Makes sense? And, and so it's, one, learning how to guard our hearts, our minds, excuse me. Two, it's learning how to embrace the questions and doubts that we may have. And then finally, I would say this. It's about learning how to hear and do. At the very end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, <coughs> He says this, he says, therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into, and what's it say? Practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. It's not just simply learning things. Learning things is part of it. But it's also doing the things that we learn, right? Because I would say this, there is a difference between knowledge about versus knowledge of. Give you an example. I don't hire people to fix stuff at my house because I don't have any money. So, guess who does the plumbing? Me. Guess who fixes the cars most of the time? Me. Now, here's the thing. I'm not a plumber. I'm not a mechanic. I have knowledge about plumbing. I have knowledge about how cars work. But I don't really understand how plumbing works. And I really don't know how cars work. Does this make sense? 
Mark has knowledge about plumbing. A plumber has knowledge of plumbing. Mark has knowledge about cars. A mechanic has knowledge of cars. Does this make sense? And so, how this applies to faith is that there's lots of people who have knowledge about being a Christian. And in the world that we live in today where you can get anything on the internet, you can get a lot of knowledge about a lot of stuff and still not know anything. Yeah? And so I can have a lot of knowledge about Jesus. I know in my head that Jesus wants me to love my enemies. But I might know nothing. I might not know how to love my enemies. And if I don't know how to know if I don't know how to love my enemies, then I, do I really know about loving my enemies? Yeah? And so, when it comes to honoring God and loving God with our mind, we obviously do the hard work of learning about what God wants. But if we're going to truly honor Him with our, our mind, we have to also do the things that He's called us to do. Which leads us back to this diagram. You would think that if I can just think right, then it's going to change the way that I feel. And that if I can get how I feel right, well then that would obviously change the way that I act and my behavior. Good? So if I just read this book, if I just read this Bible enough... And change the way that I think. It's going to fix my heart. And then I'll be able to live this Christian life out. But what's interesting is this isn't exactly how it works. What actually the way that it has to work is like this. When God calls me to forgive people I don't want to forgive, guess what? I know that he wants me to. Guess who doesn't want to? My heart. I don't feel good about this. So what do I have to do? I have to be obedient. If I know God wants me to do this in my head, and I don't want to do it in my heart, I still need to do it. And what happens is when we say yes, and we do the things that God has called us to do, it transforms our hearts. Yeah? And, and so, we can come here and we can take all kinds of notes and we can think, man, that was really good. That really challenged my mind. But if we don't do the things in our life day to day, then we're not really renewing our minds. We're just filling it up with a bunch of junk. Yeah? And so a couple practical tips real fast. We're almost done. Number one, I would say begin to develop a practice of, of studying the scriptures and reflecting on them and even perhaps works of theology. It's, it's good to just begin to see like, if, the, if, or if there are all these patterns in this world that we're, doing, we're not even aware of, well, how do I protect myself from those things? And I would say simply, you have to be in the Scriptures. And in my opinion, particularly Matthews 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is countercultural to the world that we live in. Teaching us the way to live like Jesus. And so I would begin there. And then if you have the gumption, there's works of theology. There's all kinds of way smarter people out there than us who have thought about God and following God for a long time. And so like some very simple ones like C.S. Lewis or Eugene Peterson or those types are where, is where I would start. Learning how to honor God with our minds. Secondly, I would say this. We have to begin to develop a practice of prayer and contemplation. This is where the work of what we're learning in our head begins to move to our heart. It's the place where God reveals to us the things that we need to change. 
when we find our place, find that quiet space where we can be open and bare to God, God interacts with us and shows us the things that need to, to change in our lives. And then three, I would say, it can't just simply think about it and feel about it. You have to do it. You have to learn how to serve other people, and you have to learn how to practice the way of Jesus. Yeah? Leads me to one last thought. Paul gives this wisdom at the end of Philippians. He says this. He says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, what's it say? Think. Think. About such things. What if we use this as a filter? What if I'm on my phone, find myself going down some rabbit hole, and I realize, oh man, I'm getting pretty angry about this. And maybe it's something worth being angry about, but maybe it's robbing me of joy as well. Is it worth my time? Is it worth my time? Obviously, there are certain things, there's justice that we need. It's learning how to love God and allow God to bring his justice, right? But if it's robbing me of my joy, is it worth my time? Is it feeding me lies? Is it worth my time? It's learning how to guard our minds. Good? You guys done? Done. Not bad. I think this was shorter. Dad approves. Two questions. What is God saying to you? What's one thing that you can do about it? So let's take a few moments simply to reflect on this, and then we're going to share communion together. So Holy Spirit, we ask that you come, that, we just, that you just open our hearts to you. All right, amen. Grab one of these, grab it, and take it out. Every week we take part in another type of pattern. The pattern of the cross. And every week we take part in reading this prayer as a way of renewing our minds. And so pray this with me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. So glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And after giving thanks, he broke it. 
And he gave it to his disciples. He said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took a cup of wine. He said, this is the blood of the new covenant that's been shed for you. And he gave it to his disciples and he said, do this in remembrance of me. Later, reflecting on this, the Apostle Paul said that every time that you and I, we gather and we take this bread and we drink from this cup, we're proclaiming the Lord's death until he returns, which means we remember what Jesus did, that he was broken and poured out for the sake of the world, and that we're reminded that we are called to imitate this pattern, to be broken and poured out for the people in our lives. And so take the bread, look to the person next to you and say, the body of Christ broken for you. And now the cup, the blood of Christ shed for you. Good? All right, so I'll stand, grab hands with the person next to you if you like. Pray and go home. And so, Father, we just thank you. We thank you for this Jesus who shows us what it looks like, shows us what you look like, and shows us what it looks like to follow you. And so, Father, may we renew our minds. May we not fall into the to the rut of this world, the patterns of this world, but may our eyes be opened to your grace and good news. May not only we believe it, but may we live it out. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you just be with us this week as we go. We ask that you just guide and keep us. And in Jesus' name, everybody said, Amen. Amen. See you guys.